live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show. You are on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud. I'll be your host this evening at 640. I'm in the studio with Stefan and Jason. I think Bilal's kicking around there too. So thank you all for working with me here tonight. And for all of those that are listening, thank you for joining in. We know you have other choices, but we're so glad that you chose us. Um, yeah, man, it was a difficult week. I don't know. It's kind of, I kind of try to start the show off with something a little bubbly and exciting and catch everyone's attention, but it's a very somber week. It's a, a very difficult week for uh, Torontonians. It's a very difficult week for those in policing. It's a difficult week for a family in Mississauga. It's a difficult week for a family abroad who are now all mourning the loss of loved ones from a senseless act. So if you're not paying attention or if you weren't in the t- in the city you weren't paying attention to any of the media all week long as it relates to the shooting the senseless shooting of uh, constable andrew hong may he rest in peace uh, along with a uh, father in milton um, who also uh, shaquille ashraf who also passed and a 20 year 28 year old international exchange student whose name we don't know for the benefit of protecting the um, the privacy for his family until they've been notified have all died as a result of a senseless act, a killing, a shooting, um, I think a vengeance from uh, by from someone who um, probably should have spent all of their lives in prison and who, uh, as a result of the system, and we'll get to that later in the show, in my rant later on in the, se- in the, in the hour here, um, about why people get let out. Anyway, a whole nother story. We're going to get there, promise. Just stick with me here tonight, and uh, we're going to uh, touch on this in several different ways. But, you know, beyond the tragedy of the obvious, the, the tragedy of the shooting and how that affects the city and it affects the politicians in the city, or certainly those in policing are highly affected. I have a good friend who uh, um, is involved with Toronto Police uh, Transportation Services, and uh, he uh, rode uh, motorcycles with this guy at a time. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a sad story, great guy. Um, but, you know, Beyond the death, the obvious of the death of the of the father and, and businessman and community man, as in um, you know as we were talking about uh, in terms of uh, Shaquille Ashraf, um, and you know this young man, this 28 year old person, young person who was working in the body shop uh, where the second set of killings took place. Um, it you know the difficulty here uh, is for all of us to manage the emotions that we feel in situations like this. You know, just simply, I mean, just on a, on a personal note, I, I'm sure if you've listened to the show, you've heard before, my mom passed away now five months ago. Um, you know, a woman in her mid-90s, um, you know, went in a, in a peaceful kind of, um, I guess, um, you know, not as peaceful as the queen, but pretty close. Um, you know, and the loss of, of her still riddles me with, you know, difficulty in sleeping and I have difficulty sometimes focusing. Um, I can only imagine, can you only imagine, God forbid, that your husband, your wife, your loved one gets up in the morning, they go to work, doing their job, putting in, you know, nice, nice guy, you know, nice person, putting in their time, you know, legitimately involved in, in making a living, helping the community. And as a result of being, you know, at work, 
just doing their job, him and one of his uh, part-time workers were shot to death. Not to mention the father, the husband that we're talking about as we look at Constable Hong, may he rest in peace, right? The, 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 the issue that we're talking about is his family, as with every other day, when Andrew Hong, Constable Andrew Hong, left for work, I'm sure kissed his wife and children goodbye and went off to work proudly. He's a big man, hard to miss, I'm told. So how do you process the emotions of the expectation that your loved ones go off to work and are expected to come home? Especially that day, Constable Hong was out on a training exercise, likely not to come across anything nefarious, and likely not to be in a situation where he's going to come into harm's way. Harm's way found him. What emotions do they go through? Well, I can tell you that I deal with you know patients in in grief and, and loss uh, therapy, and a part of you know sometimes people get involved in in uh, maybe doing too much of this or too much of that, drinking too much, too many drugs, too much of this, you know, acting out on the as a result of the grief and loss. So some of us act out in negative ways, in ways that aren't healthy, right? Anger, we get we get angry. So how does it make? We can't make sense of it all. How do you make sense of it all? How do you deal with the anger? You have to try to manage yourself. You have to try to, you know, say that this is so rare an experience. This is just, you know, some people that are, you know, highly connected and and and, and religious would say, you know, quote unquote, this is God's way. I'm not sure that's something you tell somebody, and I'm not sure that you know you say something to somebody like, you know, he lived a great life. He was a great, a great man. That doesn't provide comfort either. So if, God forbid, you're in a situation where you're dealing with these kinds of emotional feelings, where the anger and the, as a result of grief and loss and maybe guilt because you didn't say the right things when they left the house this morning, you need to get some help. You need to get professional help. Talk to somebody. Talk therapy is wonderful. Seek out a therapist. Seek out a, a clergyman, a good friend that will listen. And you never say to somebody, I know how you feel, because you don't. People like, we don't want to hear. I didn't want to hear, well, you know, she was in her 90s, she lived a long life. Yeah, but it's my mom and she's gone. People want to hear about, when you're, when you're comforting someone, you talk about great stories. You talk about positive moments. You talk about the way the, that the deceased impacted you in a positive way, or the community in a positive way. You want to ease their pain, make them feel comfortable. On our last minute going out here, I want you to listen before we come back with the next segment. We're going to be talking to a mental health, mental fitness and mind, mindset coach to help understand how you control our minds. But have a listen to Carol, uh, Karen Lieberman's report uh, from Global News here. Well, if, if Andrew hugged you, you would feel it for about seven days. That's how I describe Andrew. So he, uh, he did everything big. He was a big man who rode a big bike with a big heart. And um, he'll be missed in a big way. Tributes pour in for Constable Andrew Hong, a 22-year veteran of the Toronto Police Service killed in an unprovoked attack Monday while on a lunch break from a training exercise in Mississauga. He always had this uh, great way of coming up and asking me for a favour that was unrealistic. Uh, Boss, we need this, we need that. Close personal friend, Toronto Fire Chief Matthew Pegg, called Hong larger than life. His personality was in the room before he was, and uh, we had a lot of laughs. And I, I had the privilege of watching him do his job, um, unwavering dedication. 
As many lay flowers at the site where Hong was murdered and at his workplace, members of the policing community, past and present, reflect on the sacrifice. It's one of the risks that comes with the job of wearing that uniform and, 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 and the uniform and all it symbolizes. But the job is to be out there to protect the public. He was a big boy and he had a big personality and big, big, big personalities are hard to replace in our business. Karen Lieberman, Global News. As soon as we come back here, we're going to talk to uh, Corey Chadwick and mental fitness and mindset coach here on Road to Recovery. This is Jonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Yes, you're on the Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Um, we, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, working out and dealing with our, our bodies and fitness. And um, I tell patients all the time that, you know, part of being healthy and dealing with mental health and addiction disease um, is, you know, you got to eat properly, sleep properly and work out. And, um, you know, we all hear ads on the radio and our station all the time encouraging to join a gym. But you ever thought about the need to work out your mind? So actually, I have. Um, and my wife has encouraged me because I'm getting a little bit older. She's encouraging me to do things like we play Scrabble and we play board games and games where I have to use my brain uh, to actually think and make decisions. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thought about how to do that, how to train your mind, how, you know, like you get a trainer to lose some weight. You get a trainer if you want, work on your strength and, you know, feel good, look good, whatever. Where do you find someone to train your brain? Well, my next guest wants you to live your life and wants you to be a 10. Yeah, that's what he means. He wants you to be a 10. And how do you work out your mind? Joining me to talk about that right now is the owner and operator of The Mental Gym. His name is Corey Chadwick. He's the founder of The Mental Gym. Corey, thank you for joining us this evening. Hey, Yona. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Pleasure. What's a mental fitness and mindset coach? I love the, uh, I love the title, bro. Yeah, uh, we're all about working out your brain, right? Taking things really from good to great. So building the tools, building the mindset, building the skill sets um, to, to train your brain, to think a certain way, make decisions a certain way, so you show up and behave the way you want to and get the kind of results that you really want out of life. Yeah, generally people uh, in my in the world that I work in, as long as you're not getting high and drinking too much, you usually behave. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I get it. Um, so here's a, I, I mean, here's a question off the cuff. Um, how does how does a guy, you know, I know a lot of guys that open their own gyms, a lot of women that want to open their own gyms, people that want to open their own gyms and stuff. It's all, you know, it's an obvious extension to your your desire and passion of working out. How does a guy like you decide that you know what I'm going to open a mental gym? And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put myself out there as a mental fitness and mindset coach. How did you get to that? Yeah. I mean, this started for me a long time ago. I would say as far back as high school, there were kind of two parts to this. One, uh, I always felt like I had potential growing up. You know, that feeling like you've got potential, but you don't know what to do with it or what direction to point yourself in. Um, school doesn't necessarily help you figure that out. So I always had this real need to work on myself, uh, just try to be a better version of myself and, and realize that potential that was always important to me. Uh, mental well-being came on my radar uh, around the same time. My mother suffered from mental illness. No one really talked about it at that point, right? There was a lot of stigma about it and it was a pretty quiet conversation. But um, unfortunately, we lost my mom to mental illness. And I was, I was scared that this was genetic, that this was coming for me too. Yeah. And so I decided, well, I can't do nothing about this. I've got to be proactive 
Uh, at the time, I was a psych major. I always I was always so interested in how we think and make decisions and why we do the things that we do. And so just a little bit at a time, I started rewiring my brain, just kind of upgrading how I thought and made decisions and behaved one little adjustment at a time, one small improvement at a time. Um, and really over time, these two these two focuses or passions of mine to, to be the best version of myself and also to take great care of my mind. Uh, those two just came together and became the same thing. Um, I'll kind of fast forward in that journey a little bit, but it was like puzzle pieces were coming together. Dots were connecting and people started really taking notice. And eventually I started sharing what I was developing with other people and they were seeing incredible transformations in their lives and their businesses and then with their families and I was always just looking for the, the best way to share this with people. And then one day uh, I was in the middle of a CrossFit class and uh, the yeah. light bulb went off, right? We have yeah. these gyms for our bodies. Yeah, exactly. We need this for our mind. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Corey Chadwick. He's a mental fitness and mindset coach. He's the founder of the mental gym. Corey, um, sadly, I knew your mom. I know the story. I know your family. I know your dad um, since I was a kid. Uh, so, um, again, my, my, my thoughts go out to you and your family all the time when hearing that story. Uh, but you know what, from darkness, we get light, right, bro. And, uh, clearly you've, uh, you've electrified yourself to a point where you're able to get out there. So I got a couple, I got, you know, a bunch of questions here and we're going to have you on for a couple of segments, but when you talk about, you know, I lit myself, you know, kind of the light went off and, and I was working on your, where, how were you? What what was kind of the 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 the, um, the the modus operandi or the or how were you training your brain? Where were you getting? Who was your mental gyms? Uh, your mental coach, so to speak? Yeah, uh, actually, in kind of a strange way, it was my mom and and it was my dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seeing when things don't go well, quite frankly, gives you a perspective, and you get to see yeah. what's not working and why it's not working, and and kind yeah. of understand the um, kind of the thought processes, the principles that are kind of at work and like, okay, you're doing it this way, but I, you know, like really happy people are doing it this way, but you're doing it this way. Um, and I would just, I was fascinated by that. I had some great case studies like right there in my life that, that really yeah, no got me going thinking this way. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I think even when I was like younger, my dad was a lawyer and he'd challenge me to think differently and, <laughs> and see different perspectives and he'd, he just, he'd always play devil's advocate with me because I loved to think and I loved yeah. the challenge. I, like, I really enjoyed that. And, uh, I think just a combination of all that really. Yeah, that was your my, dad would have been right. Your thing. dad would have been just the right guy to uh, to play uh, to play main brain games with for sure. So how, how do you how do you exercise your brain? Let's get to the, let's get to the program. Um, mm-hmm. How do you actually exit? I mean, the program that you run. How do you actually exercise your brain, brother? Yeah. So we we have like group classes. So the same way you would go to like I mentioned CrossFit or like a spin class yep. or a yoga yep. class, right? This group model. So you're in a group class together. We do this live over Zoom. And the idea is we, we challenge you to think, kind of like the way my dad did to me, right? We challenge you to think and we challenge you to think differently. We're working on different concepts that help you be better versions of yourself. So we're kind of putting together personal development with proactive mental well-being and performance, challenging you to think and see different perspectives. We discuss certain concepts and kind of look at them in different ways, really taking big ideas and breaking them down into super small parts. And the idea is when you're engaging with these concepts and, and, thinking about how they apply to your life and how you can use them to improve yourself. Again, I'll go back to that one small adjustment at a time, one little improvement at a time. 
And you just keep doing that, like week in and week out, making one small improvement, one small adjustment, and it really creates a compounding effect. It adds up and adds up and adds up. But the idea is to keep your mind in that mode of always improving, always challenging yourself, always being better, um, really paying attention to how you think and why you think a certain way and then why you make choices and decisions the way you do and being really intentional about that, giving you the tools to do it and, uh, and just applying it to your life. So. Yeah, are we talking about an actual exercise? I mean, I don't want to jump in, but I got so many questions to ask you here, bro. <laughs> um, the, the, are we talking about actual, like an actual exercise plan for your brain, or just you're challenging people to think more clearly, to think more attentively, <clears throat> to be more, excuse me, more focused on, on what's on their mind? Like, what's the exercise itself like, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, we call them workouts. What, and that, and that's okay, exactly what's what the workout like? It works for me. Yeah, yeah, so what's the we'll, workout like? Again, we'll kind of start with like a simple concept of just, it can be anything. We can be talking about accountability. We can be talking about honesty. We can be talking about why we take things personally and get triggered. We can talk about respect, I mean, vulnerability. I can go on and on and on with the amount of things that, that we work on in, in the gym. And the whole idea is, hey, see this concept? Like, this is how people who are really crushing it in life do it. And this is how people right, who aren't crushing it in life do it. Right. Where are you on this scale? Like, let's say the scale from one to 10, where do you want to be? How can we start thinking about it a little bit differently? And we'll just ask really engaging, challenging questions to get you to think and then get a, there's, there's that discussion. So you get to learn from the trainer, but you also get to learn from each other. These different perspectives from amazing people from different walks of life and, um, and you're really just, again, just challenging your brain and seeing different perspectives. And as you notice how you think, you get to be really intentional about how you think and just uh, really keeping you in that, in that mode. In, our, uh, in my practice, obviously, you know, people sign up for my virtual business or for our inpatient programs, and they all ask the same thing. You know, what are, what's the background of your, of your therapist, so to speak? So in your, in your case, what's the background of your trainers? Uh, are they certified? Are they, are they, are they uh, trained in a way to actually do the training, or is this kind of like a, an entrepreneurial thing that's kind of uh, working as it works with not, without a lot of uh, sort of uh, structural support in terms of uh, training um, degrees, diplomas, and such? How, how do you answer that? We got less than like less than a couple of minutes here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, coaches with, with good, good track record, like I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I, that, that's not it. It's, it's, it's really having developed this. You mentioned that entrepreneurial thing. It's a huge part of it, but using a lot of science around it yeah. to support it to, to, this is why this works. How can we share this with people in a way that engages them that is, and that they genuinely enjoy, like it's fun to work on yourself and do this this way so that you keep doing it, so that you, you put the consistency in and, and really make it a sustainable thing in your life. Uh, real quick, before we go to break, and then uh, I understand you're going to stick around, so you'll come back. That'd be great. Sure. Uh, what type of person, uh, like what kind of person? Is it a guy like me? Like what kind of guy like your dad? Who's in the gym? Yeah, it's generally like smart, ambitious people who just want more out of life. They're yeah. checking a lot of boxes and things are good, but they know that there's more. They want more out of life they want more out of themselves they you know and um that that's a big part of it and uh, also innovative organizations teams leaders like that's that's who we're working with 
So uh, if you're just joining in here, I'm talking with Corey Chadwick. He's a mental fitness and mindset coach, the founder of The Mental Gym. We're going to continue with him as soon as we come back from break. I think he's going to teach us how to get from a 7 to a 10. If he can make me look better and get rid of my stomach at the same time, he'll be a superhero. (laughs) Fix my head and my gut at the same time, Corey Chadwick. We'll be right back on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You're on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud, your host this evening here at 640 Toronto. Thanks for checking us out. We're glad you did. We just love you guys. And uh, it means so much to us when you tune in and participate. So thanks for doing that. And hope you're having a cool weekend for sure. Uh, I'll tell you how you get to a great weekend. You chime in right now because I'm talking to Corey Chadwick. He's a mental fitness and mindset coach and the founder of something called the Mental Gym. Exciting and exciting, exciting program. Uh, Corey, glad that you can stick around. Thanks for uh, being here. Um, you know, a, a lot of you know, people say for years, years, people would say, have a nice day. You know, have a nice <laughs> day. Um, you know, help, hope you have a good weekend. Hope, you know, right. So I, you know, about, about three years ago, four years ago, I started to cone the expression, you know, make it a great day. You know, right. have a great day. Uh, you don't have a great day. You know, you don't have an any kind of day. It's a day that you make, right? So, uh, leading into my next question, young man, why do you think so many people are okay with a good life instead of a great life? Why do we settle for Eh, it's all right. It's fine. I, I, I'm not looking for great. The steak is fine. I'm not looking for great. Why do so few people think they can get to great? Yeah, a great question. <laughs> That's why I have a radio show, Ken. Right, yeah. That's why. <laughs> um, I, I think a huge reason is that we're, we're kind of surrounded by not great. We're surrounded by people who also accept, this is my life. This is the way it is. I'm doing well enough. I'm checking the boxes. I'm successful by the definition of success that I learned growing up and I learned in my neighborhood. And um, so, you know, things, things are good. And I think the other thing is with sometimes when we think about great, we have this like weird idea of what great means. We think of like greatness and, you know, leading an army or winning a gold medal or something like that. And it's like, no, 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 we're talking about personal greatness. Like what would be great for you? What would, what would your great life be like and your great version of yourself? Um, So one, I would just say people, you know, we're surrounded by a certain thing and a certain think and a certain kind of mentality. And the other thing is we don't know how to get from here to there. We don't know how to do it. We don't know what steps to take. We don't know who to trust. And when you put all those pieces together, you kind of just stay stuck where you are and say, yeah, this is good. I'm happy here. Even though deep down, you know, you know, you're not quite satisfied. You know, I have, uh, I have people and I have a, uh, a, a, um, coaching and uh, leadership practice, uh, which I do in the mornings from nine until one. And then I see patients from one until seven. I kind of break it up. So not everybody's telling me about jumping off a bridge and, uh, or wanting to jump off a bridge. Just give me a break. Um, and you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of, you know, I work with a lot of very sick, but you and I wouldn't, I guess maybe you wouldn't, um, but most would call a very successful person, right? Making hmm. money, uh, you know, ex, you know, mid, you know, middle six figure income family, you know, life, a cottage, children, everything going for them and they're miserable. And, you know, and when you say to them, you know, like, you know, what, what's important to you and they've already achieved like the material stuff. Um, they seem to have achieved what looks like on the outside, the familial structure that everyone's going to go, wow, nice looking family, uh, has the two cars, the cottage and the home in downtown Toronto, but miserable. 
How do you how do you how do you help someone who from the outside looks like they're greatly successful, but on the inside they're just not checking, as you would say, not checking any of the boxes? Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of people. Like you said, you work with them, I work with them, Um, and I wouldn't say that I necessarily work with people who are miserable, but but people who are you know somewhere on that that spectrum of not being as happy as they want to be. One of the first things I'll ask them is, "What do you want?" And they'll say almost always, "I want to be happy." Yeah. And it's like, well, where do we actually learn how to be happy? We probably didn't. And we thought that, well, doing all the things that they're doing is going to lead to happiness. And it doesn't, right? It just doesn't. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah. make yeah. money and, and have yeah. cars and stuff. But it's like, it's I not the you. answer. So, so you got you to gotta prioritize in life. Like, what do you actually want? Are you going to prioritize your happiness, your fulfillment, the, the kind of relationships that you want, the the that sense of self-satisfaction, that, that pride in your life, like, I'm doing this right. You know, if you're not going to prioritize it, it's not going to happen. Like you said before, you create the day, right? You don't just have it. You create this for yourself. But you got to decide that you want that for yourself. You know what, Corey? Um, I, it's interesting because uh, I, when I do an assessment, I, I, we ass- I assess every patient that is in any of our practices, uh, usually ahead of time, just to make sure it's a fit and we're going to be successful for both for both of us, right? Uh, mm-hmm, sure. you know, so one of the things I will say to them is, okay, imagine that I'm your fairy godfather and I'm waving a magic wand and I give you three wishes. Don't wish for money. Don't look for wish for a hot girl or a hot guy or whatever you're looking for. I can't give you those things, but give me, you know, tell me your three wishes. And brother, nine out of ten don't wish for happiness. Why is that? What are they wishing for? Well, they're wishing to stop drinking. They're wishing to have better relationships with family. They're wishing wishing they can get a better job. You know, like you know, get their license back. You know, you can imagine, right? Um, but very few in in my therapy. It's again in my therapy practice. Very few say um, I want to be happy. Where mm. and and you know what? I, I, I'm sure you get similar responses. I don't think people either. People take happiness for granted. I think, or yeah. they just don't know what that's like to achieve how do you help them get around that yeah they don't well what i point out to people is those things that they're saying that they do want more money better job this thing that thing it's all to be happy the reasons that we want what we want and do what we do and make the choices and decisions that we do is because we hope they'll help us be happy so why not just understand that that's the motivation and kind of skip to that all right well instead of just kind of assuming we know how to do that why don't we just pay attention to let's learn how to be happier um and that's like, it, it's a huge mindset shift. It's a small thing, but that, that shift really changes a lot. Um, you know, in some ways, we're just not as self-aware as we want to be and need to be. And, and you know, that's okay, but we need to become more self-aware and, and, uh, and understand kind of what makes us tick. Are you living a great life? I, I sure believe so, yeah. <laughs> Good boy. Glad to hear that. Um, how do you help somebody? Uh, we got a couple of minutes left here. I really want to get to some of the meat. Uh, how do you help someone you know, who's kind of hovering, like I said, you know, above average, kind of the seven or eight, but how do you move them to that 10? I'm excited to hear from my own, my own benefit. How do you, not that I'm a seven, but um, I don't think I'm a 10 either, just so you know. Uh, But uh, maybe I'm okay being a nine, right? Uh, But the, the, the question is, how does someone move that that needle when it's close to the end? I, I get the I get the three to seven or the three to three sure. to six or three to eight, but when you're closer to the end, how do you how do you push through that last little piece? Well, I think there's different pieces, right? There's certain things that get you to seven, and then certain things that get you stuck at seven um, by doing the same things. You know, okay. we we got to shift the focus to things like our own personal development and 
becoming that version of ourselves that deep down we believe we could be. We got to start focusing on the motivation, the, the contribution that we could make by doing that, how we show up for other people, kind of like a sense of purpose, although it doesn't need to be exactly, you know, a, a purpose statement or something like that. And really having the greatest quality relationships we can, especially with the people who matter most to us. And when you can really just change your focus from what you're focusing on now to that, you see how much it shows up in your life and how many uh, opportunities every single day you have many, many opportunities to make little decisions, little choices that point you in that direction. We, we kind of live by this motto of living your 10. It's 10 is not perfect, but it is your best. And so every decision we make goes through the same filter, 10 or not 10. You're not really choosing 10 or seven, 10 or eight, 10 or six. It's just 10 or it's not 10. Everything else is not 10. Um, and when you, when you think that way, when you, you just start to approach things differently and hold yourself to a bit of a higher standard in things that really do matter most, which also actually helps you show up at a higher level than the other things that you want to show up at anyway, which is really nice how that works. Right. It's not like you're trading off your career, trading off your, exactly. your money or something like that. Like you get all of it, which is really great. Um, but yeah, that's what we do. And again, just a little bit at a time, little shifts. That consistency is huge. Community is huge. Guidance is huge. Accountability is huge. But you put those things together and uh, you transform a life. I'll tell you, if you're looking to get your head straight, get your head on right, you want to get from uh, that, uh, oh, you know, sort of happy, but maybe not really get to that super joyful stage, you know, that uh, knocking it out of the park. Every, How's your day going? I'm having a great day. Uh, sometimes I say that to people and I feel guilty about it. I think that maybe I'm smoking something uh, or, you know, whatever. Uh, but I'm actually, you know, having a great day. But for me, it starts with putting my feet on the ground and uh, having a breath, and that's kind of enough sometimes. Uh, but I am talking to Corey Chadwick. He is a mental fitness and mindset coach, the founder of the Mental Gym. I assume you can. How do people find you online, Corey? Uh, MentalGymLife.com is the website. Um, you can, if you want to get in touch, shoot an email to hello at MentalGymLife.com. Uh, kind of two great ways to learn more and, and talk about us and uh, or talk with us. And I, I, I'd love to have that conversation. Hey, maybe we'll have you come back some other time, eh, Corey? I'd like to talk more about this and just see how it's all going. Uh, I'm talking to Corey Chadwick, mental fitness and mindset coach, founder of The Mental Gym. Check him out. I'm uh, I'm certainly going to. When we come back, um, you better be ready because I've got I, – I'm on a rampage here about how the bad guys get let out of jail, how these bad guys can roam around, pull a gun out, shoot a copper in the, in the, in the, in the you know, directly, you know, head on in, in a coffee shop. I don't know how this happens, but I'm really pissed off about it. When we come back, we're going to talk yona bud road to recovery 640 toronto welcome back to road to recovery with yona bud only on 640 toronto if you're on the road to recovery hopefully you were listening ahead of time uh, we were talking to Corey chat uh, chadwick he's a mental fitness and mindset coach really need some help getting your head straight he's the guy to get a hold of and i'll tell you he could help me get my head straight right now because i'm having a, ser a serious problem so you got to recognize a couple of things number one i spent over i spent close to a decade uh working in the prison system as a as a chaplain religious chaplain um primarily in uh, in ontario but uh, in some of the federal prisons as well uh doing interviews and providing uh support uh, guidance and therapy where it was appropriate um and got a, you know got to deal with a lot of folks a lot of 
a lot of uh, people who were convicted of, of uh, felonies and doing uh, doing their time. I've some have become good friends uh, now that they've uh, turned their lives around, and uh, you know we've had a, a few of them on the on the radio, on the show here before. Um, had Eddie Hertreich and uh, Marcel Wilson, and to name just a few of guys uh, the guys that I know that are making a huge difference in the world now that they're uh, on the outside doing good work. But they, you know, I learned a lot about how to how to play the system. Uh, and if you've ever heard, you know, I was not a good kid growing up. I was a, I was a criminal teen. I was, I knew how to lie, steal, and cheat, uh, as best as any of them out there. Um, became very good at it, very organized, uh, became very organized at one point. Uh, you can read between the lines there. Uh, and learn how to mess with the system. I learned how to, you know, how to, how to keep people happy, how to stay, keep out of jail, all the right things to say to a police officer if they pulled you by, uh, pulled by and, uh, and, and, you know, asked you questions. Same too with those that are convicted of charges. There are many, and, and please understand, there are many, many, many folks that are convicted of charges and convicted of different uh, crimes and work really hard to getting their lives together. Many of them. That's what not, this is not what this segment's about. It's the ones that BS the system. It's the ones that pretend that they're okay, that attend all of the right classes, that attend the AA meetings, that attend the anger management classes. Only, only, with the mindset of when they get out, they can hardly wait to get back to the debauchery, the crime, and the disgusting things they did to end up in jail. And I'm not talking about people who are, you know, guilty of, of, of drug trafficking charges or possession charges because they're really mentally ill and using drugs to self-medicate. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about violent criminals. Sean Petrie, 30 years old. They never like to use their names. He was a violent criminal. Shouldn't have been out of jail. He's a gangster. According to the, according to the, uh, the, 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 the sources here, he had a long history in his short life, spanning close to 20 years, criminal history written close to 20 years. Guns, gangs, violence, child pornography, assault, sexual assault. This guy's got a history, robbery, gun-related violences, gun-related gun crimes, dating back to 2000. Like, this kid, I guess he can't be 30. This doesn't make sense. Um, you know, if he's 30 and this is going back, he's, this kid's been a criminal since he was probably 12, 14, 13, 14. Not, not good. I mean, he's dead. That's where he, you know, unfortunately, that's how he ended up. I would have preferred for him to do his hard time the right way like everyone else. But they learn. People learn. You learn how to work the system if you're a bad guy. You can get out. You can work the parole program. You can work the probation program. If you know, if you know how to hustle and you know all, all the insides and how to be where you need to be and have your, your baby mama say all the right things and have your own mama say all the right things or your aunt or your grandma, you can get out. And if you're a bad guy and you're just holding it back to go out and do more things, and, and, and do crimes that are worse than the first time that got you into jail, maybe the second, third, or fourth time. Well, I don't understand how bad guys get out when they go through a parole board, when they go through psychological testing, when they go through um, you know various uh, forms of filtration, filter systems, to make sure that they come out when they're ready to come out. So not not let's not just look at it from the perspective of someone 
who's, who has the ability to scam the system such that they can get out and beat the system so they can commit more crimes, continue to sli- sling their, their, their drugs and, and, com- and commit their crimes and create, you know, hurtful, if not deadly situations for people. What about the victims? What about 27-year-old Marianne? I made up her name, but it's a real person. What about 27-year-old Marianne? Right? What about her? She was raped twice by the same guy. The first time, while on campus. The second time, outside of where she lived. And he went to jail. And he was charged. And he was held in custody. But it was a time when he was a a youthful offender. He was under that age. So he was charged as a youthful offender. And before the case even got to court and, and, and the, and the outcome of the, of the trial was in play, somehow the bad guy got out, assaulted another person who was a witness in the original rape charge, was held in custody as a youth, and for 12 and a half months sat there, couldn't, couldn't arrange bail. There wasn't anybody healthy in their family, in his family. To Usually it's a mom, it's a family member that posts bail, someone who the court believes is a good, a good, uh, uh, a good example, provides a good example or someone who can be trusted to make sure that the person who's un- in their care during this, uh, during their, their uh, bail period or their custody period, where they're at home instead of in, in incarcerated. If you can't find someone, you stay in jail. And because of that, he had all kinds of time served, what's called time served. Because you can't get, so you actually get rewarded if you can't get bail because the time you do while waiting for trial plays into the sentence you receive. So, he received sentence time served. Three people, three people were involved in being sexually assaulted. How does the patient, how does that 27-year-old woman, how does she sleep at night knowing that this person's out and walking the streets now? And even prior to trial, she had concerns that he'd be getting out on bail any day, any day, any day. Every day she went to sleep, her concern was whether he was going to get out on bail that day. Why do bad guys get let out? That's the question here. How does that even make sense? More than one, more than one victim. More than one situation where this person clearly shouldn't have been in a position where everyone isn't safe. Because, you know what, getting out of jail or getting out on bail, if your head isn't on right and if you're really not thinking about doing better and being better and getting the help you need, makes no difference. There's no recovery there. There's no rehabilitation. So you're, of course, going to have people that reoffend over and over and over again. I don't understand that. I don't understand how bad guys continue to get out, why the victims aren't considered. In this case, this woman, who at the time was much younger. But this woman had to live with the trauma, the fear, the uncertainty, the traumatic stress around the fact that her perpetrator, the bad guy, 
her abuser was likely to be let out. And in fact, as that case turned around, he was let out. She moved 550 miles to another part of the city, another part of the country. On his way to try to find her, apparently, he reoffended, tried to rob a gas station, was apprehended, and is in custody. So I guess the cream rises to the top, so to speak. Bad guys will find their day. Their days will come. But from the victim's perspective, from the family's perspective, you know, if you're if you're the family, if you're if you're if you're Shaquille Ashraf's family, and you're asking yourself, how does how do people get let out of jail in in in, in this country? How is that even possible? That a bad guy like that, who's got a huge, huge, huge list of crimes and activities that were known to police, how do they get let out? Where where are the missing pieces here, my friend? Why are the victims not thought of? Why are the families of victims not thought of? And if they are, not much. Because the way the system works, there can be all kinds of structural and, and uh, procedural uh, mistakes that are made during, uh, during the uh, prosecution of a criminal, the apprehension or the arrest of a, of a criminal. And if you've got a slick lawyer, and I know a lot of them, you know, God bless them, most of them are my friends. We went to camp and school together as children. They're phenomenal lawyers. They'll find every little nook and cranny, every little thing that they could find to make it clear that, they're, that, they're, uh, that their client is, is really innocent or on, or on the quote-unquote road to recidivism, road to, to uh, being uh, uh, rehabilitated. They're great at it. That just means a whole bunch of bad guys get out. I only you know, got a minute here before the, the segment's over, but let me share with you. There was a time way back that I worked for an organization called Street Haven at the Crossroads. I also worked for the Addiction Research Foundation in, Clark, in the Clark Institute as a street worker. So they combined my services, and I worked in court, in bail court at Old City Hall. I shared an office with my friend John, who's with Salvation Army. He was a senior officer with Salvation Army. Him and I had an office just off the parking area as you get come in off the, the back street there where they bring in the paddy wagons and uh, the prisoners. And I'd sit in bail court for hours and hours every day. And by the way, I still do if I get a chance and I'm downtown because I love it. It's a great way to just connect to what's going on in the streets. But I saw person after person, some guilty, some innocent. I knew some of them. I knew the, some of these gangbangers. I knew some of these drug dealers. I knew some of these pimps. And they'd get out. Somehow they'd manage. They had someone show up, p- provide bail, and out they go, smiling and kind of tat- tipping their hat, so to speak, to the, the officer who made the arrest. I don't know. I don't know how they continue to get out, but when we come back, we're going to talk about more stuff, and I'm going to calm down, I promise. You're on the road to recovery. This is Jonah Bud here, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us. You are on the Road to Recovery. I'm your host this evening, Yona Bud. Thank you for being here with us. We appreciate your, uh, you know, I don't know, checking in with us and being part of what we're doing. I'd love to hear from you. How do you feel about the government paying for 
veterans to smoke weed for get their medical marijuana. If you think it's a good thing, I'd love to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Or if you're outside of our area, 888-225-8255. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're a veteran and you're uh, on the marijuana program or on the subsidy program, please let us know. If you know anything about it, please let us know. And how do you feel about the government covering veteran affairs, uh, the Veterans Affairs folks covering uh, the medical weed for their um, for their uh, patients, right? For their uh, soldiers that have come back, um, and you know, wh- I remember this way back when we were when we were f- first looking at treating uh, patients with post traumatic stress from Veterans Affairs. Uh, we were uh, because I run a treatment facility called the Farm in Stouffville. There, we you know wouldn't uh, we allow for proper medications to be used, and it took some time before we got comfortable with the use of medical marijuana and uh, CBD uh, for patients that were being brought to us from Veterans Affairs. Uh, be very became very difficult to manage those patients uh, while they were on marijuana. Some of them needed to smoke four or five times a day. Well, even as the demand grew, grew, has grown exponentially, auditors found that continuing um, vicinity of research uh, about the medical benefits itself is, is really an issue, and the risks, right? So an internal audit by Veterans Affairs suggests that Ottawa law has lost, uh, but lost control, shelled out hundreds of millions of dollars for veterans' medical marijuana every year uh, without any real oversight. So quietly published last week, by the way, or this week, um, that would have been last week now, the auditor's results come uh, amid an explosion in the number of veterans seeking reimbursement for their medical pot, from around 100 in 2014 when I first got started with all this to about 18,000 last year and uh, no end in sight. The result, Veterans Affairs spent more than $150 million on medical marijuana last year, uh, more than on all other prescription drugs combined for their Veterans Affairs program, and that number is expected to grow to $200 million this year. There are companies out there, there are businesses out there that are in the business specifically of helping veterans get access to the medical marijuana, and they themselves have made millions and millions of dollars. So some are using this program to get recreational weed for free, we think, and it goes on to talk about the fact that... Um, Following us, here's where the, the, the change resulted in an explosion of claims the government provided since 2014 for Health Canada to approve uh, Veterans Affairs uh, providing the uh, support for the program. But many of the patients that were treated with this, uh, with medical marijuana, and by the way, it has great benefits for those that it's a good fit for. It doesn't fit for everybody. But some of the red flags um, were the potential risks to veterans um, some of them where we, so here we go. It included an, a reimbursement for 45 veterans whose medical condition, so reimbursement for medical marijuana for 45 veterans, according to the study, uh, or audit really, whose medical condition was listed as a substance abuse disorder. <laughs> and 46 of whom were also being reimbursed for antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, opioids, and narcotics. Well, I can tell you that if you're on any kind of antidepressant, any kind of mood stabilization medication, antipsychotics, so on and so forth, and you mix it with anything like alcohol, marijuana, any other kind of street drugs, you diminish the value of the medication that you're supposed to be on. This program is rampant with opportunities for people to take advantage. And the study found, in fact, the study found that um, some were actually using the free program to get recreational marijuana. 
that means the program is at risk then of losing its funding, which means those that really need the medical marijuana um, support, the subsidy, will in fact be at risk of not receiving it because of their inability, the program's inability to manage the difference between those that need it for medical purposes and for those that need it for um, are, are just taking advantage of, of a program, of a free weed program. And I'll tell you, if you're buying marijuana these days recreationally or even medical, uh, so here's how it works. If you're a medical marijuana user, if you have a prescription and you hold your prescription at a particular licensed provider, so let's say one of those providers might be Tweed, who's a well-known provider of uh, licensed medical marijuana to all of the medical marijuana stores, the, the can Ontario cannabis stores, and across the country, across Canada, to the each provincial uh, program. <clears throat> they they are in fact. So if you sign up, and you've got a uh, a, um, a a prescription, then you have a you get discounted marijuana from that provider. The problem is you only get what that provider provides. And in many cases, the, there's limited strains and limited access to particular types of marijuana that might, in fact, be more beneficial than not. And you may not be able to get that at your existing uh, license provider where you hold your license. So you lose the benefit of that uh, subsidy or the, 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 the reduction in cost. You know, I think that the, the insurance companies that have third-party and people with third-party insurance, there should be some subsidy for insurance companies to cover uh, marijuana being purchased uh, under a medical uh, exemption, meaning that you have a legitimate prescription, right? Uh, but the fact that... Um, like, it, listen, it works. It helps a lot of patients with post-traumatic stress. I have a lot of patients that have PTSD that use uh, versions of medical cannabis, particular, particularly the CBD side, the part that doesn't get you high. It's the cannabinoid side, right? CBD, Charlie Bob David versus THC, which is the part that gets you high. So, you know, high concentrated CBD, low concentrated THC works really well in many mental health uh, situations. I use CBD uh, daily for uh, my mental health issues, my uh, anxiety, my uh, focus with ADD and OCD, um, and I use it for pain. I have uh, continual uh, back pain and leg pain. Uh, so it works really well for me, and I, I, I add a little bit of THC at night before sleep, and it works great. My doctor sees me uh, regularly every six months, and we uh, sign a new prescription annually to meet the needs of uh, my uh, my uh, particular uh, case and my particular um, uh, diseases and, and, and disorders that we're, that we're managing. It works for lots of people, but it doesn't work for everybody. And sometimes if you're using marijuana with post-traumatic stress, it can spin you out if you don't have the right combination and you're using perhaps maybe a little too much THC and maybe that particular strain makes you a little paranoid. And when you get paranoid with PTSD, it's a perfect storm for disaster because you think that the people that are, you know, perhaps out to get you, so to speak, or people that perhaps might be not thinking of you in your best interest and you freak out and get a little paranoid and perhaps a little violent around it. So, you know... Weed isn't just weed, my friends, especially these days. The high concentration of THC that's available in marijuana today is beyond anything everybody would thought of, right? So the Veterans Affairs Program, as much as it's designed to help those in need get the marijuana that they need, get the prescription that they need, the medicine that they need, it's not managed well. 
not managed well, not necessarily just from the perspective of the provider of the prescription, the medication themselves, but in terms of the government requirements, the, the um, Veterans Affairs requirements as to what it is you need to do to qualify. And there are some doctors out there whose business it is, uh, psychologists whose business it is to write prescriptions for veterans. There are, uh, I think there's, in, in the article it goes on to talk about how uh, there are, you know, several doctors who the bulk of the prescriptions seem to be coming from. I'm hoping that these doctors, these psychologists, medical doctors, are uh, actually seeing the patients, managing them. It's like any other medication. Marijuana is like any other medication. It needs to be managed. You need to have the ability to be checked on to make sure that you're using it the right way, that you're not using it to just, you know, stay in a, in a, in a negative cocoon and not let yourself out, that you're high, you know, highly depressed and the more you stay at home and smoke, the, the less or, or use, the, 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 the more depressed you become. Who's looking after these folks? Who's looking at them and regulating their marijuana? Not many people. There are many that do, but there's a whole bunch that don't. So whether marijuana is a smart tool for treating PTSD or not, we don't really know. What other soldiers use? Listen, talk therapy is is a great is a great uh, a great uh, tool for treating post traumatic stress. You know, neural uh, neurofeedback therapy is a great tool for treating post traumatic stress. That's where you attach certain um, you know in a passive way attach uh, things to your brain and you are uh, interfaced with certain things that, uh, you know, um, basically cause you to think certain ways. And, and neurofeedback really does help you sort of reset your mind, reset your brain, so to speak, if that's, you know, the appropriate way to look at it. So there are many treatments. There are many forms of treatment for those that suffer with post-traumatic stress. Um, marijuana may be one of them, uh, but not without proper doctor's care. So I think, you know, Veterans or Veterans Affairs, I think, are doing the best they can to manage uh, those that are in pain. Uh, but I think we need to do a better job of helping manage those prescriptions such that, A, we're getting the best bang for our buck as taxpayers, right? It's not for free. Become, you know, there's millions and millions of dollars involved here, uh, along with other medications too, by the way. These, you know, I would say that if, if someone's being provided benzodiazepines, um, like, um, you know, Valium or something like that, it, it, just to make it easy to understand, clonazepam, any of the diazepams. So some of those are used under good medical care uh, for the treatment of post-traumatic stress, helping people sleep, helping them get through their anxiety. But that stuff can be easily abused. I deal with a ton of people, lots of patients, who started off with proper prescription medications and then just got too far into them. And couldn't find their way out. And then their doctor ha would have retired or left or closed their practice or was found, you know, uh, maybe given a little too, uh, too pen heavy, as I would like to say, where they're writing a few too many prescriptions. There are all kinds of options. There are great support groups for soldiers that return. Veterans Affairs have done an excellent job of creating supports and support groups. And there are many organizations that help soldiers that are dealing with the stresses of coming back from a war zone, right? Helping one another, group therapy, individual therapy. The Veterans, Veterans Affairs will pay for mental health therapy and talk therapy, um, I think, pretty indefinitely. I don't have that for a fact, but pretty indefinitely. They certainly pay for rehab. They would pay for us to, to house 
you know, patients for 30 days, 60 days, nine. We had one that was stayed for 90 days, all paid for by the government. He wasn't ready, ended up leaving. He was doing great. Don't know what happened since. But, you know, the problem with these programs, these free uh, drug programs, is there's really, there, there's not a, an own, there's no onus really on the patient themselves, or in this case, the veteran themselves, to really, you know, kind of match up to something that may, in fact, um, you know, be a requirement to continue the program. So hopefully they're going to get this thing under control. But for right now, nothing seems to be changing. Uh, so for those soldiers that marijuana is helping, I'm really happy for you. For those soldiers that uh, marijuana is not doing much for, you really do need to seek other forms of help. And even if marijuana is working for you, it, it, it only works, medication only works in conjunction with good uh, talk therapy or other forms of mental health and uh, behavioral therapy. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be joined by Tom Dingwall. He's a marital candidate for the town of Clarington. I've been to Clarington. It's a lovely town. Uh, he's a retired police officer as well from Duran Region. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, kind of how to get past all this stuff um, as a result of this shooting uh, from the earlier part of this week. You're listening to The Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Budd. This is 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show. You are on the Road to Recovery. You're in the second hour here with me. My name is Yona Bud. I am your host this evening here at 640 Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you tuning in. We love you guys. If you need to ever reach me, you can, right? 877-777-5808 is how you reach me by phone. Or you can always drop us a line here at road to recovery at 640toronto.com love to hear from you and we will get back to you i promise and share your ideas and uh listen to what you have to say if you have something to say um on tuesday this past tuesday alex pearson uh, who is my colleague who uh, does the morning show here during the week uh she received a phone call from a listener um, and he made everyone's ears perk up as i'm told in the studio tom dingwall is placing a big portion of blame for this week's deadly shootings across the GTA on our politicians. Hey, have a listen here to what he had to say to uh, Alex on the show. The politicians tend to uh, try to make this about a legal gun issue. It is not. This is an issue about politicians not taking a tough stance on punishment. We have people carrying firearms that um, should still be in jail from previous serious criminal offenses. We're not holding our politicians to account and saying that if we truly want to get serious about gun crime, we need to get serious about the punishment related to gun crime. Uh, yeah, you know, if, you've, if you're listening to him, like Tom knows what he's talking about, okay? He's worked as a police officer in Durham Region for over 30 years. The guy has, you know, lots of experience under his belt. For many years, he was the lead homicide investigator. Tom retired from policing in, back in February. Now he's running to be mayor for Clarington, which is a lovely town. If you've never been there, you should go, especially in the summertime. It's really a cool place to go and buy stuff. Uh, he says one of the main reasons he's running is because police officers in Ontario are woefully under-resourced and underfunded. He says it's taking a massive toll on their mental health. No kidding. I've been getting tons of officers in my practice. Here's more of what uh, Alex had to say, uh, what he had to say to Alex Pearson here uh, this past uh, Tuesday morning. Have a listen. This is to be depleted. We're running on minimum staffing on a regular basis. We need to fund our police. We need to, to provide them the tools that they need. You know, we were so uh, compelled by listening to Tom's call on uh, Tuesday that we've asked Tom to join us this evening to continue the conversation. Tom, Ding Tom Dingwell, how are you, sir, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. 
I appreciate you uh, staying up late to play with us. Uh, Tom, you know, it's a sad day for all of us, for sure. Uh, certainly for those in uniform, uh, doesn't matter what uniform, uh, for, uh, in uniform. And, um, you know, I got to I gotta start this off by having a conversation that's probably not going to be uh, well-received by many of the audience. But seems to me in the 40-odd years that I've been on the street doing what I do and you guys have been out there doing what you do, as soon as you take away the ability to... I don't want to say stop and frisk because that's what everybody gets pissed off about. But as soon as the bad guys no longer fear you coming up to them when they're carrying a gun in their belt, they became a game changer. Way back when, when I was a punk on the street, if anyone was dealing with firearms, they had them hidden away in grandma's basement or in their auntie's uh, closet or the back of some you know schoolyard somewhere where only they know where to found it, find it. Now everyone's carrying one in their belt. Tom, how, do you, how does a cop get up in the morning, put the uniform on, and get out there knowing that they're probably going to uh, face some bad guys and not have much they can do about it. Well, and uh, you've you've uh, actually described it quite uh, quite well. Um, the people on the street they are very emboldened at this point, and they believe that they um, are untouchable. And for many reasons, um, in, in certain circumstances, they are. You know, people talk about carding and uh, stop and frisk, as you said. Um, we have always had intelligence-led policing. And um, as I said on the other radio show, if you ask most, uh, most police officers, they will tell you, we have a pretty good idea who's carrying these firearms, who has these firearms. The issue is um, we're not investing the money in the units that actually have the time to uh, go out and deal with it. Um, we are running at minimum staff on a regular basis, as I said, and um, I believe I also said that uh, police officers have become very good reporters. We're showing up after the fact. We're showing up and dealing with the carnage and doing our best to, to solve the crime after it's happened. We are, we are not investing on being proactive. We're not uh, putting the money into the uh, units that can um uh, go out, get the information, um, do the warrants, and actually um, target the people that we know are responsible for these crimes. And it's unfortunate, but um, as I said about the lawful gun uh, issue, when every dollar we direct at going after people who are lawful uh, gun owners is one dollar that we are not directing at the border. One dollar we're not directing towards the gang and gun unit. It's... uh, it's dollars that are not being invested uh, where they should be, which is to allow us to have the intelligence, to have the tools, and have the staff to go out and keep us safe. You know, Tom, um, you know, the, the uh, I don't even know where to start here, you know, looking for guns coming across the border and so on. We hear about hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in this uh, province and uh, in the city of Toronto here that we broadcast in here, uh, GTA, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent towards better policing and more community activity. And then all my friends that I deal with, like the guys in, you know, um, zero gun violence, if you don't know Mar, if you don't know these folks, Louis March from zero gun violence or Marcel Wilson, one by one movement, uh, these guys are in the, in the trenches dealing in the communities where there are, uh, are lots of gun violence, uh, perpetrators live in the same communities and so on. Where's all that money going, buddy? Like, I don't get, like, if they're not putting it where it needs to go, where is it going? Well, I can tell you, um, you probably, you may or may not know, but I was actually a candidate, uh, a Conservative Party of Canada candidate 
um, in the 2019 federal election um, in Ajax. And um, one of the issues that I was raising there is that the Liberal Party had allocated, it was over $300 million, I believe, um, to this issue. But the money had never actually been um, sent to the uh, agencies so that they could utilize that money. So at the same time, all these drive-by shootings and things were happening. Uh, Money had been promised, but it, it had never been given. So um, that's what I meant by when I said uh, politicians uh, are responsible for a lot of this. They wear it because they make promises. They do it at election time and they don't deliver on those promises. And we need to start holding them accountable for that. Because as that money sits in a bank account where it was when it was promised and our, our police officers are needing it desperately to keep us safe and they're not getting it. Um, somebody, somebody should be held to account for that. How um, just uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll continue on here in a little bit, and we'll talk about uh, who's responsible and what you think needs to change. But let's get to uh, let's get to your fellow officers, to your brothers and sisters in in uniform. Yes. Um, their mental. I mean, I, I I can tell you that in my private practice, uh, we are seeing a an influx of frontline uh, workers, uh, healthcare workers, and uh, a lot of coppers that are retiring now uh, in their mid to early fifties that have had enough years in to get out early, uh, and they're coming out a mess. To um, and you know, you know what you know what coppers were like way back when in the day. You know, if you had a bad day, you saw a shooting, and you went and you talked to your sergeant. He'd say, "Okay, grab a two four on your way home, and uh, be ready to come back to work in the morning." We now know that that's not the way to uh, to get the kind of help that officers need. Uh, and in fact, I know that police services are providing across the country are providing a little more support for their folks. But in reality, how do we help officers get past something like we saw at the beginning of the week, and just the fear? of knowing that at any point in time, it's not even like you're going out on a domestic call or you're calling, you know, a, a, a robbery charge or something where you know to, to be on your, on your, on your toes. You know, you're walking to get a cup of coffee. You don't expect someone to stick a gun and blow your brains out, right? No, absolutely not. And, um, you're correct that some, some, uh, some police agencies are, um, leaders in providing, uh, the types of mental health supports and working very hard to, um, alleviate the stigma attached to somebody actually reaching out and saying they need help. Um, our officers absolutely need to know that when they need help, that it's available to them and that they can reach out and they won't be, uh, they won't be looked down upon. They won't be, um, um, left on their own, but there are certain agencies that still aren't getting it. Um, I was at a, uh, at a gala um, just the other week uh, for Canada Beyond the Blue, and it's a nonprofit agency yep. which uh, yep. is actually run by family members of uh, police officers, and they provide mental health supports and help to break down that stigma. Um, but there were age, or leaders, great leaders from across many, many different agencies that showed up to that event. But there were certain agencies that didn't send a single representative. And that tells me that there is still um, a lot of work to do in um, providing those those resources, but also letting, letting our members know that they are supported. And um, there's nothing worse than going to a call and, you know, seeing things that you never signed up to see. And, um, you know, in 30 years of doing what I did and working in homicide and working in sexual assault and child abuse. Um, you see a lot of things that, um, 
you know, you, at the end of it, sometimes it, it certainly helps to be able to talk to somebody who understands what you're, what you've gone through and what you're, what you're uh, reliving. Um, because quite often it's, it's a sound or a smell or something yeah. else that takes you yeah. right back to that call. And if, um, if our members don't feel supported and comfortable talking about that, uh, you know, we lose more members to suicide than we do to, um, being, being killed on the, on the line of duty. So I think, I think we still have a second. I think you still have a suck it up buttercup, uh, kind of mentality in some of the other, uh, policing agencies that we're talking about here. Um, stick with us here, Tom. We're going to have you come back right after break. I'm talking to Tom Dingwall. Uh, he's a marital candidate for the town of Clarington and he's a retired police officer in Durham region. Um, glad to have him on. We'll have him right back here after break. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yonabad 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You're on the Road to Recovery. It's now 1036. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? That would include your seniors and your pets. If you don't know where they are, you should probably check in on them. By the way, it is Saturday night, and it's, you know, kinds of crazy stuff can happen out there. So keep track of those. And if you need some help, give us a call here, 416-870-6400. But 911 is probably the best place in case you're concerned, uh, I'm on the phone. I'm on the call here with um, Tom Dingwall. He's a, a marital candidate for Clarington. Uh, he's also an ex-copper from uh, Durham Region with over 30, 30 years in. Seen all kinds of ugly stuff for sure. Um, a little bio here. Um, he's been a resident of Clarington for 30 years, de- dedicated his life to protecting residents, fighting to make Durham Region a better place. Been married to his wife, Arlene, for 25 years. She is his rock, as he says. He knows all the right things to say. Good husband. Uh, we've raised two incredible boys. We hope to make the decision we did to live, work, and raise their families in Clarington. His father worked at GM for 36 years. I believe Clarington's leadership can do better for its communities, families, and businesses. Our next mayor should be accountable, passionate, and so on. Values I bring to a community and being honest. He's not a politician. He's running because I believe he can make some change. Uh, and I believe he can make a change, not just to Clarington, but once he's in, I think he can make a change overall. Tom, uh, welcome back. Appreciate you joining us. Um, let's focus exactly on what you think needs to be changed in policing. If I gave you the key or the magic wand, so to speak, and said, okay, it's your responsibility. Let's get a handle on all this gun violence nonsense and these senseless shootings of uh, kids shooting kids and, you know, children being shot and you know, officers being shot at close range during a, a coffee break. We're just in a, in a really bad place when it comes to gun violence, knife violence, uh, you know, pouring gasoline on people and lighting them on fire violence. Like it's really gotten out of control, Tom. What, what would you do if you had the magic wand? If I had a magic wand, um, I, I can tell you that uh, first and foremost, I would make sure that we are no longer running at minimum staffing. Um, every time we're at minimum staffing, we are sending our officers to calls that put them at greater risk. Um, and we're also putting them in a situation where they are unable uh, to be proactive because they're going from call to call to call and they're simply taking reports. We need to have our officers um, have enough officers so that they can get out of their cars, so they can interact with the community again, so that they can uh, start to gather information and build those relationships because, after all, it is our community that provides us with the information that allows us uh, to to do the warrants, to uh, focus in on the right people and to uh, get them off the streets. I would also make sure that our courts start to take things seriously. You know, when somebody's been 
involved with gun crimes uh, repeatedly, and uh, they're being released, and uh, they're back out doing more gun crimes. It, it's just, it's a revolving door that is killing people. And if we are going to get serious about it, we're going to have to be honest about it. Um, I would like to see um, our minimum mandatory sentences back for firearms, uh, firearms offenses, but I would like to see it more than four years. I, there's no justifiable reason for anyone to be carrying a handgun in, you know, out on the street. And if you're carrying it, I think you should be going to jail for a very long time. And that'll send a pretty clear message that uh, we're taking it seriously and you should really think twice about uh, how cool you want to look to your friends by carrying a gun. Um, I would get our I would get our police officers back into the schools. I think yeah. that was a huge yeah. mistake. Yeah. Huge mistake. You build yeah. those relationships, and you uh, with uh, with our our youth, and they know that you're someone they can trust, and that there's someone they can go to when they need help. And by taking us out of those schools, and then in the next breath saying why why are we not connected with our community? It's um, it just it makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, I actually became a police officer because in grade four, um, a police officer came to my to my class, and that um, discussion with that police officer um, changed my life. It uh, made me want to do what I do, and uh, I said yesterday that my son uh, just joined the police service. So, oh wow! Um, how, do you, how do you feel? Let me stop you there for a sec, buddy. How, how do you feel about? Forget about you know who you are and what your job is and where you come from. How do you feel about that as a dad? And how does mom feel about that as a mom? Are you, are, is she nervous? Are you guys nervous about what it's like to wear a uniform today versus 30 years ago when you put it on? Well, I mean, it's, it's your you kid, right? I, yeah, I can tell you that I am incredibly proud. And I can tell you that my wife is incredibly scared. Um, every time he leaves the house, I know that um, she, she, is, she is terrified. She's worried. And what's happened yeah. in Toronto, every, every family of every police officer is terrified right now and the the officers are going to be on high alert and rightfully so because you just don't know what's going to you know where the where the next uh, person's going to be that decides they want to do something like this so you, th- you you think there's going to be a change to cops uh going for coffee break in terms of maybe going together as opposed to one at a time like i realized that constable hong may he rest in peace i know he was he was doing a the solid that the kind of guy he was he was doing a solid to pick up coffees for everybody while they were on this training uh, uh training exercise uh wouldn't have thought twice i'm sure of walking into a passive tim hortons or whatever it was and, and, and facing what he faced um but you think every copper now that gets off their bike or gets out of their car thinking about going in for coffee maybe by themselves gives it a second thought i don't know that they, that it will change officers mindsets to to that because um when somebody uh, like this um this individual who who decided to do this i don't know that it would have mattered if he was by himself if he decided to uh that that's what he wanted to do and that's the scariest right. part is when somebody is has made up their mind and they don't fear consequence. They don't fear death. They don't fear, um, you know, going to jail clearly because he'd been in and out multiple times. Um, there's no way to protect yourself from that other than to have your head on a swivel and be uh, suspicious of everybody. And that's not a great way um, to do your job. It makes you unapproachable. It makes you, uh, it makes it very difficult to, um, to really get through the day. 
So yeah. officers are going to have to, you know, it's going to be very tough for them to try to cope with this. And um, it's going to be incredibly tough on their families because they will worry more than more than the officers do. Um, you know, we're, we're, uh, we 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 go to calls that are incredibly dangerous and we put our lives on the line and, you know, we expect, um, you know, that we may have to use lethal force at some point And, you know, we, we train for that, but families don't, families don't train for the fact that, you know, yeah. one of these days their, their child may not come home. And I've had to deliver that message. I've had to knock I'm on sure. doors and, and tell yeah. people that their child isn't coming home. And, uh, whether it was from you know extreme violence or drug overdoses or suicide or traffic accidents, I you know I really wish, as you said, if I had a magic wand, I really wish I could change it so that no officer ever has to deliver that message and no family ever has to get that knock. But the I'm only way we're going to do that is to uh, is to make some serious changes up. and take it seriously. Yeah. I'm talking to Tom Dingwell. He's running for uh, mayor of Clarington. Uh, if you're in that area, he's the guy definitely to vote for. If I could, I would from here in Thornhill, but uh, I don't think I can get away with it. Uh, I'd love to have you come back on another time, Tom. Thank you for all that you did in the past as an officer. Appreciate your service, and thank you for all that you're going to do now going forward. You're on the road to recovery. This is Jonah Bud here, 640 Toronto. When we come back, more stuff to do. Just hang in there. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You're on the Road to Recovery for the last segment of the evening. Boy, the time flies, right? It's just all I know is last time I looked up, it was 9.05, and here we are almost done. Hopefully you've enjoyed what you've heard. You've gone some benefit from what you've listened to, and... Uh, Maybe just uh, tuned in to the right stuff at the right time. We're here to try to help. That's what we do on this show. That's what this course is committed to, helping those uh, that work for the company and those that listen to their stations and be part of their media group. Uh, we're here to try to help everyone on their own roads to recovery. It's been a very, very difficult week, and uh, if you haven't heard and you're just tuning in uh, later on, uh, we had started off the week with a terrible tragedy. A Toronto police officer was shot dead, execution style, the owner of a Milton Auto Body Shop, 28-year-old bystander, also shot and murdered. Um, and it's just very difficult to understand. You know, Constable Hong, uh, Mr. Shaquille Ashraf, um, the Hong family, Ashraf family, and the family of the 28-year-old international exchange student. I send my deepest condolences, and we pray that you have a, a, a an easy, as easy a time as possible in mourning, and that you get strength from the beautiful memories of their past, and they can live through you going forward if we do all of the right things in their merit. And you know that's kind of what you know one way you get on the other side of difficult times like this how do people people say to me all the time how do you you know I, I lost my mom I lost my dad I lost my son god forbid um I, you know lost my grandma uh you know someone close to me a boyfriend a husband uh wife um and you know there's really not anything that the right thing to say so to speak right there's just not you don't have the right thing to say nothing seems to be the right thing to say and it's interesting you know the whole concept of mourning and uh, I know in the in the Jewish faith uh, for those that uh, are observant of this particular uh, uh, this particular uh, tradition I suppose uh, we have seven days of mourning uh, it's called Shiva uh, we mourn uh, we mourn in the home of the person who's found who, who was lost who's passed 
Um, and those, uh, you, you mourn with family together and friends and relatives come to see you, come to visit with you. Um, and you're limited to what you say in these environments and in, 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 in a Shiva setting. Um, you're limited to, you know, talking, you know, talking about things that are positive about the person. You know, you, 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 you try not to do, spend too much time consoling the mourners, so to speak, um, unless, of course, they're looking to be consoled. Uh, and the mourner actually kind of drives the process uh, in this particular traditional style of mourning. Uh, people have wakes for, for days sometimes, uh, celebrations, celebrations of life. There's many ways to manage the grief and loss of someone close to you. Um, and it's a different kind of loss, if you will, when it's someone who is sick and dying over time, someone who was hit by you know a car and an un, un, uh, un, um, uncontrollable ex, uh, uh, some form of of accident, uh, you know, unexpected accident, un uncontrolled circumstances, something that was beyond uh, beyond uh, anyone's control, if you will. Uh, but in this case, these three men were shot. Aim, absolutely for no reason. There was no benefit, no reason, no cause, no, no anything other than this guy Petrie was on a rampage and I believe ended up where exactly where he wanted to be. There's a thing called suicide by cop. Suicide by cop is when bad guys go out there or people who are suffering and want to end their lives in a tragic and violent way will commit crimes or be involved in the commission of crimes only to know that when they come out of the building, come out of the room, come out of the car, come out of the store, the bank, whatever, yielding a gun, they're likely going to be shot to death. I have a patient not long ago who uh, is uh, dealing with uh, uh, traumatic stress and loss of uh, loved one, uh, lots of anxiety and depression issues, has bipolar disorder, uh, they weren't on their medication, uh, went off on a rampage, uh, that rampage included drugs and guns. The only purpose that this person had guns in their possession is they were hopeful that when they were stopped by police that they would be shot and killed. And frankly, when they were arrested and brought, to, brought into custody and then into care, uh, they're upset. They were angry. They wanted to be dead. So sometimes it's impossible to predict what's in the minds of those that are so ill, that are so bent in the wrong direction, that their hope is to lose their lives and take people down with them. But how do you ease the pain of someone with such an unexpected, punchy-in-the-face kind of tragedy like this? Nothing really to say, only what to do. And what you do is you surround them with love and support and affection and care, making sure that their children are cared for, making sure that their family needs are taken care for, that their dogs are walked making sure that they have what they need in the house, that there's groceries, that there's, if there's you know, snow on the ground, that you shovel the snow. Do whatever you can to make their lives easier. It's not going to be easy to ease their pain other than just by being around. And saying things like, I know how you feel, stay away from that. Or, you know, getting off on police and venting angry anger towards politicians and police and you know, those at the Border Patrol that aren't, you know, seizing the guns. You know, we can find all kinds of people to blame. There's only one guy to blame. His name is Petrie, and he's dead. That's the only person to blame. Can't blame yourself. 
Oh, if only I would have asked him to stay back today. If only I would have asked him to stay home today. If only I would have given him one more kiss or told him one more time that I love them. Can't live like that. It's not a healthy way to live and it's nothing that, it's not a way that's going to bring back your loved one. It's not going to bring back the loss that you feel. Venting that kind of anger against and towards others probably doesn't lead you to where you want to go, my friends. Certainly not going to do you what you need to do. Anger is one thing to feel. Resentment, loss, depression, sadness, grief. These are feelings that you need to vent with someone who knows how to deal with it. A therapist, a clergyman, a close friend, someone you go to for advice and counsel, a mentor, someone's mother that can help you through it. Other police off, in this case, other families. You know, I would suggest that they reach out to the zero gun violence movement or the one by one movement who have structure to help families who have lost family, who have lost loved ones to gun violence, to unnecessary criminal activity. Sad story. I don't want to report on this one again, but I'm hoping that we can all heal together, come out the other side on the road to recovery. I love you guys. I want to see you next week. You've got so much more to do, such little time to do it in. So let's do it together. We'll be back 9 o'clock next Saturday night. Please join us. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.